Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today, looking at modern Chinese history from the uh, about 1839 to the present. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Today, uh, just to the beginning announcements, uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. I'm not sure what I'll do with the substack. I haven't done anything with it, so I may um, either reconsider it or just phase it out. I've been getting books on you know, on how foreign trade has changed China. One that arrived in the mail just today was China's War on Smuggling, Law, Economic Life, and the Making of a, the Modern State, 1842-1965 to by Philip Tai, T-H-A-I. And then I just started reading The Scramble for China, Foreign Devils in the Qing Empire, 1832-1914 to by Robert Bickers. Once we finish the Taiping Rebellion, which also includes the Second Opium War, I think I'm, like, the, the next real big revolution, I think, is going to be, well, there's the reformers who tried to save the Qing dynasty, but then there's, you have uh, Sun Yat-sen and the beginning of the Republic of China, which is really where things start to get super modern. Uh, so I want to spend a good long time looking at what foreigners were bringing to China, uh, the different things that they were setting up, uh, because that's going to be a lot of what the uh, People's Republic of China is going to be recovering once they get over the Cultural Revolution time and that sort of thing. In this particular series on the Taiping Rebellion, uh, at some point we're going to switch focus to the book Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt because there's a lot of revolutionary material there, like the uh, the Han Chinese general who helped suppress the Taiping, but didn't go on to, he did not go on to overthrow the Qing dynasty. So that's an interesting look at, like, the the evolution of Chinese ideas of what it means to be a nation, that sort of thing. The Chinese revolutionary movements, uh, they need to, one, strengthen China, and two, figure out how to exist in the new world that has forced its way in, in a way that is congenial to China. For example, like modern bureaucracy, foreign you know, foreigners are going to impose uh, indemnity payments on China, but then they're going to set up and run the customs department taxing imports into China for China so that they can collect those indemnities. So there's a lot of stuff that is going to be built in China that's going to be destroyed but then brought back once it's all under Chinese control. As we zoom in on the present, there's more and more stuff that's going to be important, and so that'll 
let us expand into some different things. So, for example, no one cares who the Emperor Kangxi's uh, prime minister of sorts was, or if he had one, but Chairman Mao's dentist is going to be a lot more interesting. But then again, Chairman Mao had terrible teeth, so that makes it even more interesting. And so that's that's going to... like When I was in China, uh, when I worked in Chinese media, two years, I, I would walk by this giant statue of Chairman Mao every time I'd be going to the work cafeteria. He's kind of big, still. The, the statue and his legacy. So, for this episode on the Taiping Rebellion, uh, in this episode, uh, Hong Xiuquan is in the base area from which the Taiping Rebellion will launch. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the consolidation of the base area, further development of the ideology behind the movement. Today we're going to be talking about the activities the believing community got involved in, the solidification of their teachings, their doctrines, and their conflict with authorities and the surrounding community. And again, uh, today we're drawing largely on God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence. We're starting in autumn 1847, ten years since the first visions, ten years since getting that book from Protestant missionaries, that's in 1837 that the visions and the book and everything started up. And they have had exposure to the complete text of the Bible, uh, allowing Hong and his closer companions to elaborate and revise their teaching and promotional materials. One of the central practical items is that they're going to start taking action on is commandments against idols. Previous writings included praise for Confucian scholars who inhibited, slowed down uh, China's slide into superstition and idolatry, but the later editions of Taiping materials uh, attack Confucianism more directly and openly, and there's an account of a vision of Confucius being severely beaten before God the Father, and you know his past good things are remembered, so that's why he's not sent to hell. But he, he's not allowed to go back to earth because he was the source of things that deceived people. And so this is all what Hong Xiuquan is teaching. And the uh, you get things like the Bible in the Old and New Testaments is pure. Confucian texts are faulty and corrupt. One of the things that you'll see with idols in China, and in this case I'm not using the term idol for, like, as though calling it a false religion. It's just you have to call the statue something, uh, and it's used in religious per, uh, for religious purposes. When you go to temples and religious places, you get a chance to see some of the deeper parts of people's lives that you don't see on a tourist trip. So there are some places I've seen in China where like there's this Jade Buddha temple in the city of Anshan in Liaoning in northeastern China. It was built in the 1990s. It it looks new because it is new. 
and realizing that they're still building temples, making idols, making religious devotional items like the Buddhist equivalent of a rosary, that really puts a new complexion on when you see things. It's like, yeah, people still do this. It's still a thing. There were times that I didn't, that I visited Buddhist temples and I was offered the opportunity or I had the, or I could buy some incense sticks to light before an idol. I didn't do that because that's not my thing. Um, I go there and I learn what I can, trying not to make blanket evaluations before I have enough evidence to like make a decision about what I'm seeing. Uh, but the the uh, you know, people like actually go to these places and they hope to receive some sort of blessing or you know just you know, increase their luck or you know, and then you also have the more narrow subset of people who very very seriously believe in a lot of all this stuff. It's so then when you. Uh, one time when I went to Wuhan, I believe it was, there was this area where you could walk in and there's like all these idols and you, you could kind of go around in a circle. It, it wasn't exactly, there was kind of a central area with idols facing outward and then there's a like around the outside wall, around the, the surrounding wall, there were idols looking in so you could walk around in a certain way, like if you went around to the left or if you went around to the right, it meant something. If you stepped in with your left foot or your right foot, it meant something. I like to do the opposite of whatever it is, whatever the good luck or good fortune thing is, because I don't believe in that. Um, not that it's not real, it's that it's not what I believe in. Um, but the the hugely practical thing uh, when some Christianity-like thing comes to China, it's the idols. Uh, so I try to respectfully observe. I don't participate myself because I don't want to get wrapped up in you know, some spiritual thing that I don't have any allegiance to. Um, I remember hearing stories of you know missionaries going out and you know, somebody converting to Christianity would have to get rid of their own idols or objects related to past non-Christian religious observance um, because there's spiritual meaning to these objects. And so if you are meaning to turn away from a past thing, you need you, know, you, you can't mix Christianity with other things. And you know, sometimes part of this is burning these kinds of things. Uh, but still, like, attacking shrines put up by other people is kind of not great. Protestant missionaries, I think I remember reading, would speak against them, but I'd, I'm not sure I remember stories of them going out and destroying idols, burning down Chinese temples, things like that. Uh, when you know, imperialist forces came in, they would burn and destroy everything. And, you know, temples would, of course, be included, but that's a separate thing. So, you know, when you, when you have a Christian-like thing coming into China, 
like it would be anywhere, there's going to be an insistence on if you're becoming a convert, you get rid of whatever stuff you have. Well, when you have a and then a further issue with the surrounding community is going to be everybody being on board with certain religious practices is going to be a critical thing in many religions for something like avoiding the wrath of the gods. Um, pluralism, freedom of conscience, etc., they're not a thing in many traditional societies. I mean, even where we're talking about Christianity here, it's it's still even an innovation for many Christian societies. I mean, the, the thought is if you're supposed to believe in God um, by your own free will, like you have to be free to not. So, okay, it's, it's a bit of a tangent. Uh, I could talk about that stuff all day. I just want to make sure to not get on too much of a tangent here. The the Taiping Rebellion, being run by a Christianity-flavored cult, will of course use none of the niceties and all of the self-confident confrontational chutzpah that they can bring together. So when Hong Xiuquan reads about the worthlessness of idols, that's going to be front and center of what he's going to be doing. So we pick up again, October 1847, they're searching for a secure base area, some local adherents uh, before he got to the Thistle Mountain area. They've vandalized shrines. Where they are, it's remote Guangxi. It's away from Canton, it's away from his hometown. And so they're they're building up to a confrontation with an idol, King Gan, that is supposed to be a historical hero. I'll tell you a little bit about the King Gan idol. Uh, he put his trust in some local ma- magician who said that there was this special burial ground that it would somehow help King Gan's lineage and how he's supposed to do it is with some bloody, like a bloody first burial. So he kills his mother and buries her there. And so, okay, it's bloody and his family is starting to be buried there. Apparently he also forced his sister to sleep with a local scumbag, some worthless person. And he loved listening to sexually explicit songs of the mountain people that they sang to get in the mood for doing all sorts of things that would not please church going people. He cursed people who spoke badly of him, like we're talking about him as a god now, and this curse could only be undone with large animal sacrifices. And, you know, worshippers banged gongs to prevent bumping into him by accident, because things happened if you bumped into him by accident. So, you know, this is exactly the sort of thing that when you're thinking of like religion being like superstition and nonsense, like this is exactly the sort of thing that somebody might bring up as that they're fighting against. Hong Xiuquan and Feng Yunshan and a local who had smashed idols before, they go to confront the idol. They strike the idol with a bamboo staff. Hong Xiuquan, uh, 
accuses it of like 10 different counts of immorality. He challenges it in his heavenly identity, like, remember me? You know, showdown time kind of thing. And Hong and, Hong and his companions tear it down and destroy it. They put up their, their own posters with like, like poetic renderings of Taiping teachings, and they proceed to make the good their escape back to Thistle Mountain. Then in this both boosts Hong's reputation with local believers, and it increases anger against him. The local authorities knew who Hong Xuquan and his believers are, um, and that they're a new religious movement in the area, but so far they're mostly trying to avoid conflict. But at the, at the end of 1847, a local magistrate sent you know, village militia to arrest Feng Yunshan, and another follower gets some of their guys, and they and they break Feng Yunshan out of the temple where he's being kept prisoner. And so then the local magistrate sends a bigger militia, and Feng Yunshan and the guy who helped do the jailbreak, they're both arrested and they're brought back to the bigger town in the area for trial for real. Like, it's not just, you know, can you come down to the police station for questioning? This is like, you're busted, you're, you're in for it. They're put on trial for going against Qing Dynasty laws and regulations, desecrating local religious sites, and they're also in trouble for the jailbreak of Feng Yunshan. And the core of their their defense arguments are, we're just a peaceful religion. Here, look at our books. And they share copies of the, the Taiping teachings with the local authorities. But they're also asserting freedom given by treaties with foreigners that Chinese Christians should be free to worship however they want. As we're going to see later, uh, we, when the Taiping interact with foreign Protestants, that the Taiping are not Christians, but they're close enough to maybe get away with claiming it at this stage. In spring 1848, Hong Xuquan goes to Canton to appeal directly to the governor general of Guangdong and Guangxi provinces, uh, because this is serious. They want to avoid the really nasty tortures that are used on criminals at the time, and also to get out of the terrible conditions of jails and prisons. And he bases some of his arguments on the 1842 treaty with Britain, including provisions for freedom for Chinese Christians to worship. But the governor general wasn't there at the time, but Feng, uh, Feng Yunshan got off anyway. He carefully argued his case, and with the help of some cash gifts to the local magistrate from Taiping followers, this helped him get out, but the local authorities decided to banish him from the Thistle Mountain area, and he went back to his hometown, back to his family, and he picks up preaching there. I think he's going to be sneaking back in any, at some point. So, I, I don't know if we call that a close shave or, like, you know, like, or a or a or a break before you you need to pick up the game again in earnest. But while Hong Xuquan has been out, 
in spring 1848 and Feng Yunshan was cast out of Thistle Mountain, the struggles have energized the local believers. Just for some background on the local context here, uh, in Guangxi, where the Taiping Rebellion was getting started, rich families, tightly interconnected, they pushed their way in from outside over a few centuries, and they owned vast land holdings. They exported rice. There was kind of a relationship somewhere between parasitic and symbiotic with local authorities and bandits and and paying off army procurement people. They These rich families would build public works like bridges and roads that benefited the local people as well as their own business efforts. They would build local religious sites and public buildings. They also organized the local militias. And so they were supporting the local religion. The authorities generally supported them and their interests. And they're going to be behind efforts to suppress the Taiping movement. The people joining the Taiping movement are from villages outside the sway of these local elites, used and abused by them, living on the edge, you know, just just workers, just, you know, poor people, workers. And the emergence of two new sources of visions from God, uh, kind of in line with the local shamanic traditions in this rugged, remote part of Guangxi province. We get Yang Xuqing, a Hakka charcoal burner. So he he did he helps produce charcoal. He is not rich. Uh, he carries messages from God the Father, and then in fall eighteen forty eight, Xiao Chao Gui, a Hakka peasant, speaks for Jesus Christ. And he brings messages to Hong Xiuquan, supposed to be Jesus Christ's younger brother. And the messages from Jesus through Xiao Chao Gui are things like hymns to sing in worship to God, doctrines, you know, like the title only for God, lesser titles for Jesus and Hong Xiuquan, a Buddhist the Buddhist goddess of mercy, Guan Yin, in, is in heaven, but she's not allowed to worth again because she's misunderstood. And news of Hong Xiu Chuan's heavenly family, you know, like children Jesus has had since Hong's last time in heaven and all that sort of thing. Now, I can't tell if this is stuff that would turn my head or if it's a pleasant, deluded world to live in. I, I mean, like, if if we're just all sitting around having visions after work, like okay, this this I guess this could be kind of fun. But it, this is a time of visitations, dreams, visions, omens, and we have one or two more episodes still of these formative months and years. Then after Chinese New Year in 1849, somewhere between January and March, that's when Chinese New Year hits, uh, Hong Xiuquan's father dies, and he asks to be buried according to the rites of the Taiping movement religion. And so we're going to see uh, some increasing 
open rebellion against the way that the Qing dynasty does things. So according to traditional Confucian mourning customs, Hong shouldn't cut his hair for three years, and he shouldn't sleep with his wife for three years. Hong follows the first commandment, and this conceals his rebellion against Qing, the Qing dynasty because they had this thing where all men had to have a queue. So they, they shaved the front part of their heads, and they grew a really, really long braided tail out to the back of their heads. Tail, because it's not exactly a ponytail, but they, okay, it's just this really, really long braid that they would have to, to, to grow out the, out the back of their heads. The, the one, so you, you could be put to death for not having this, um, or at any rate, severely punished. The one exception was for mourning. So if somebody's died, you just let all your hair grow. And so this was so that they, you wouldn't put Manchu practice ahead of respect for ancestors. So even though the Manchu were very different culturally from the Han Chinese, the respect for ancestors is something that's pretty common. And so they, so it's the start of the Taiping movement's signature hairstyle. No more Q, because a lot of the Taiping were Han. Even the Hakka, who are kind of right on the edge of what it mean of what it is to be Han, they're they're Han. They're they're not Manchu. They're they're not nomads from northeastern China. You know, but he does sleep with his wife because keeping the dynasty going and Hong Xuchuan whatever doing whatever Hong Xuchuan wants to do is what's going to happen. It. And in early summer 1849, Hong Xuchuan goes back to Thistle Mountain with Feng Yunshan when he sees that his wife is, is pregnant. Like, so, okay, mission, mission accomplished. We're going back to the, uh, the base area. So in this episode, we talked about more open attacks on idols and on Chinese religion by the Taiping movement and there's the emergence of other sources of visions from God in the Taiping movement. And there are deliberate steps to forward in rebellion against the Qing dynasty. Remember that the core of the movement is poor, dispossessed, misfits, people on the fringes, like uh, Hong Xuchuan. He's very well educated, but he didn't pass any of the exams. However well off his family might be, he's not some conventionally powerful person. And we're seeing an increased assertion against Manchu rule. So how much is that a rejection of foreign rule? How much is it a rejection of the Qing regime as such? Han cult, political and cultural supremacy is going to be a big thing when we're talking about Chinese politics. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to talk more about the development of the base area, further solidification of the movement, and uh, the preparation for the open armed uprising to establish the kingdom of God on earth 
we're going into higher and higher stakes persecu uh, persecution by the local authorities. It's like, yeah, before you could get somebody off, now, yeah, no, we're, you know, heads are going to roll. So come back next week for more of that. If you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can also go to uh, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can go to chineserevolutions.com to find links to that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time. This again has been Nathan Bennett.